Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Cars for Americans, more than anything else, represent freedom. So says Matt Hardigree, executive director of Jalopnik.com, who's featured in National Geographic Channel's new documentary film, Driving America, which premieres on Memorial Day. The film examines how car culture has changed the way we live, work, travel, and socialize. It looks into the future, including potential game changers like Tesla's electric cars. Today on the program, car expert and Driving America executive producer Matt Bennett takes us on a ride past urban sprawl, drive-in movies, OJ's Bronco, Hot Wheels, and other examples of the automobile's impact on American society. And we welcome in uh, Matt Bennett. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Tom. Great, great, great to be here. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, we're also uh, throwing out some uh, questions to uh, to you, and you can join us at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free, or join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. I want you to tell us about your special car. It might be your first car. What do you drive now? What's your dream car? What's your most memorable road trip or family vacation? And what's your next trip? Uh, millions will be heading out this summer onto the open road, and uh, we want to know about uh, your trip. Again, it's 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter as well. Let's, uh, t- to open here, let's uh, hear the uh, the open of the film. So give us an overview of uh, what's in the film. This is America. These are our cars. Fast, beautiful cars that have obsessed us and affected us in ways you've never even thought of. Cars gave us roads and road trips and truck stops and urban sprawl. Cars also gave us social status. They gave us roadside motels, hot rods, and anything that's ever happened in the back seat. Cars led to buses and Rosa Parks, moon missions, political movements, OJ's Bronco and Bonnie and Clyde, cruising and drive-ins and motorcades and Jiffy Lube. Cars gave us Woodstock. They gave us Indy and Rockford and minivans and Hot Wheels and about a million great songs. Simply put, cars have made us who we are. You want to know how? Then grab the wheel. You're about to punch it through 200 years of awesome American legends. Just some of the cars inspired by Americans. And Americans inspired by cars. So buckle up. So there's the open uh, of the film. And uh, as you can hear, uh, you... you Matt Benny, you covered just about everything. <laughs> Pack that in yeah, two well, hours we there. <laughs> we certainly did. I mean, um, Tom, the, ba- the you know, you set it up very well. The the backdrop for this show was really that um, I'm a I'm a person who has made a lot of uh, television shows about cars because I love cars, and I I'd kind of seen the uh, the television landscape change, and and um, people started making uh, shows about oh you know, hot rodding and different kinds of things that were, just weren't necessarily appealing to me because it was about uh, garages filled with people fighting and what have you. And National Geographic came to me and said, you know, look, would you take your car expertise and your passion for cars and make the ultimate car show? And I said, well, absolutely. And let's make it about, let's make it about um, America's connection to cars. A really big thing that, that uh, most of us take for granted every day. You know, we, we climb into a car, we, u- we use cars all the time to do everything, more, more in this country than any other place, you know. And so um, we started looking into it, and there, there's just, there's a world of cool, cool facts that say, 
you know, we have this and this and this and this and this, all because of cars. Um, political movements happened because of cars. Cars were the result of political movements. It's just, uh, it's kind of an endless amount of information and fun stuff that I feel like whether you're young or old or man or woman, you're going to identify with it as an American to go, oh yeah, oh my gosh, right. My dad used to drive that car. And that's a cool story. And my favorite car is X, Y, or Z because um, it has some sort of emotional, I have some sort of emotional attachment with that 73 Grand Torino or, <laughs> you know, the, that yeah. wood-sided wagon or whatever it is. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's it's so so ingrained in our culture, we don't think about it as much. We don't bring, yeah. it, bring it forward. Uh, you know, you think about the Netherlands, they're all on bikes. Or uh, right. I was thinking as I was watching the film, the the Citroen uh, in in France and other areas, kind yeah. of the boxy tinny car that, that wouldn't fly in America, I don't think. Um, no, just no, something right. something about the open road and all that space in in America that that's wedded us to our cars, I guess. Well, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, we uh, we're founded on the notion of independence, right? I mean, that's that's every, we're that's the core of who we are, and cars are exactly that i can climb into my car once i turn 16 years old and i get a driver's license i can put a key in the ignition or in today i can press the button that says start and i can drive and be independent and if i want thanks to eisenhower's incredible road system um, i can go anywhere i want in america but it's just that that sense of independence that is um, equates with exactly who we are. Before we jump into some of the the points, I, I learned quite a bit uh, watching the film. Would you know? We'll, oh, we'll only have only have time to you know hear a few clips and and to learn some of these uh, facts. Uh, but what I'm throwing out to to our listeners a series of questions. Uh, maybe prime the pump here by asking you these questions. You're a, you're a car guy. Mm-hmm. So, what's your special car? Could be your first car, or a car from your past. What's what's the special car in your past? Oh my gosh, I've got such a long list of special cars. Um, but it, it it typically goes back to the first car. I mean, my first car was a nineteen seventy three LTD two door coupe that had the rust was so bad that you couldn't put anything in the trunk because you turn turn a corner and your whatever was in there would come out. Um, but it was this magical machine for me because it meant that I could drive any place and I could go on a date and not be reliant on my mother or a neighbor or whatever it was to borrow a car. Um, so the 1973 LTD with a 351 Cleveland um, in it, and I believed it with my whole heart that it was the fastest car in the world. And, of course, it you know was just another lunky... 10 year old car mm-hmm. but it was um it that's a special car did you did you drag uh, Maine or, or cruise in that oh of course i cruised yeah. in and i can't tell you what happened in the back seat on, yeah. <laughs> on uh, public yeah. radio but but right. um there were very important important moments in my life <laughs> yeah the cars the cars bound I mean, up is in, in all of that isn't it you can you can trace like you can trace the families through that it's you know that's the it's the first date. It's the, uh, it's the. Yeah. It's then the uh, the honeymoon trip and the 
and the, the yeah, exactly. uh, you know, and, and then the Babies family car and the family cars. vacation. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they're yeah. born in cars. We're we're brought to the funeral in in a hearse when it's all over. I mean, cars are completely attached to us as as people. Tom, what was your favorite car? Your first car? Well, uh, my first car was a Chevy Nova that I I got taken ah. on. I, we we found uh, sawdust in the uh, in the you know the transmission area so that the, I think the no guy way. the guy ripped me off it ran for a while and then broke down my my favorite car from the past is a Dodge Diplomat I got it at a police auction oh um, yeah uh, eight cylinders uh, I could pass people going up hills it was it was a big old you know I, I loved that car ran oh. ran for 10 years and <laughs> hit the open road in that thing finally finally died I'm in a Saturn now so I went went completely the other direction what what do you drive now well, I'm I'm sucked into the the world of um, of uh, wisdom, I guess it is, in a in a whole different kind of way. I I drive a Prius now, and um, it's so strange for a guy who's so passionate about cars. I also have an '85 Alfa Romeo, which is uh, in my little private secret car that I keep in the garage and um, and buff. But uh, the one that I drive around is a Prius, and it and I just love it. I it's it's the new it's the car that I now identify with you mm-hmm. know it gets me around and it's still this independent vehicle and it cost me ten bucks to fill it up you know is that why you got it it was because in some circles it's sort of uh, status you know I mean and NPR yeah, circles it'd probably be status but yeah well you know what you're, you're onto something really interesting I think that um, I got it because it's the car my wife wanted I mean that's why we make choices yeah, yeah that's important and yeah. Um, at the end of the day, I was, you know, I was really disappointed that we were going to go that way. But uh, so it wasn't a status decision; it was a family decision. And um, what happened was, I I fell in love with it because there were, it just was, it was quiet, and it was. Uh, I felt like suddenly, wow, I'm I'm using less gas, and that's great for the environment, and it's still going plenty fast, and there's plenty of room in it, and. I, you know, like any car, I, I started to fall in love with it, like it was my car. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a that's kind of a big thing that that um, we do in America. Again, different than anywhere else. Anywhere else is that we name our cars, we identify with our cars. Yeah, that's we that's, don't. Yeah, that's certainly true. We don't yeah. name our washing machine or our toaster um, that we use it all the time. <laughs> we the the car becomes a. Uh, an extension of uh, who we are. Mm-hmm. One of the one and next, so uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just saying. Mm-hmm. We, so you, we're back to the status thing. Um, cars have always. Car, if you'll you'll see in the show that that status uh, has always been identified and equated with the car that we drive, and and it was very much um, planned. You know the the. The good people at General Motors back in the 20s began that process of saying, oh, well, we have to create a a ladder for you, you know, a Chevrolet and then Pontiac and then Buick and then Oldsmobile and then Cadillac, and it's sort of the Striver system. Mm-hmm. So we've always equated status with cars, and now that's changed, and I guess the ultimate, the ultimate status car in America <clears throat> has become... Uh, at least in urban areas, it's it's become the Tesla. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's fairly expensive, right? But it but it's cutting edge yeah. and 
and it might be the way of the future. What do, what do you think? Or at least electric car, is that the way we're going to go? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, you know, the, I, 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 I've been thinking about the future of cars for, uh, I don't know, about 10 years pretty intensely, and I've watched my opinion change because I really believed for, for a long time that hydrogen was the way to go. Um, and then I've seen this incredible focus on electric cars. And if you've driven a Tesla or a, a sports electric car, you'll find that it is fantastic fun, like crazy, crazy fun. So I think that that um, electric cars will play a big part in our future. But I don't think that internal combustion will go away anytime soon. So, um, hi, so hi, because we're, we're just the efficiency will will increase. Mm, right, right. Uh, interesting, and, and I guess hybrid is a you know kind of way to bridge the gap there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, there. I was interested to learn. Uh, by the way, this is one of these interesting facts. There was an electric car back in the back in the day. It lasted for for quite a, quite a while. I guess uh, what Mamie Eisenhower had an electric car. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, there. Back at the turn of the 20th century, from the 19th to the 20th century, there were um, there were basically three players out there. Uh, there were steam cars, and there were electric cars. And then this trailing thought was that you know this internal combustion engine might work as well. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing because <clears throat> the the electric car was the sophisticated one. Um, we could climb into that and push a lever and travel along very quietly, and you could wear a nice dress or you could wear a nice suit. It worked great in the city. They were very slow, but then again, every car at the time was very slow. But, um, you know, an electric car topped out at about 18, 19 miles per hour. Mm. It was definitely the, the luxury choice because it was quiet and clean. Um, Steam cars were really, really popular among those of us who were, um, you know, forward thinkers, uh, because it was a it was a technology we were familiar with, you know, in this, in the you know steam locomotion. Um, so if we were if we wanted to go fast and we were you know the kind of mavericks that way, the Teddy Roosevelts and such, we were we got our steam engine and we had a <laughs> steam car and they went quite fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were very, very, very cumbersome because it took an hour for the darn thing to get ready, you know, the, the heat to warm up the steam, and it it was a, an issue to get the thing going. <laughs> a, a real project, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so internal yeah. combustion so went, it, went out in the end, but it, but originally it was you have a scene in the in the film where you have a yeah. gentleman with one of the older cars. He's demonstrating how you. What you have to go through to start this thing, you have to you have to be almost be an acrobat, and and then you you might you know, as he does in the in the film with the the crank coming around, might get your thumb, and it, it was a whole deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, th- let me just say that man um, who is in this documentary is uh, his, his name is Larry Edsall, and Larry is um, one of the legendary automotive writers in this country uh, one of my my absolute favorite automotive writer of all time and um he's 
been around for quite some time and uh, has driven literally every car that's been ever been made. And I, he's one of the guys that I would call up on the phone and say, hey, Larry, should I buy this? And he'll say, oh, yeah, buy it. And I'll buy it without a test drive. You know, he's, he's that kind of uh, that kind of educated to it. So we asked him to do the show. He'd never, ever been on camera before. And so it was a huge, huge honor for Larry to be involved in this. And he brought some real uh, real gravity to, to what we were doing. And so we, we asked him about the Model T, and he said, oh, yeah. You know, nobody realizes how difficult it was to start the darn thing. And there are very few people that actually know this, but Larry... Larry knew it quite well, and he, we have it on camera, him saying, oh, here's how you start the car. And it's like this nine-step process where it was very dangerous. It, caused, it actually caused a death um, 100 years ago it, in just starting the car. It, it got many, many people injured. It caused everybody who wore a nice clothes to get them greasy and dirty. It was very difficult. And so... Um, it wasn't until the Cadillac came out with a, a a starter, an electric starter that AC Delco out of uh, Cleveland, I believe it was, had created this thing where you say, "Oh, we don't need a crank. Lose the crank." And that it was at that point that we were off and running with um, internal combustion because people said, "Oh man, that's we've got." endless supply of oil that'll never go away and we can uh it's it goes fast and we don't have to get dirty and we don't have to wait an hour for the steam to warm up it's the way of the future and those back to your prius and tesla thoughts you know um so our electric and steam cars just went away Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Matt Bennett. He's the executive producer of a new film. It's uh, premiering on National Geographic Channel at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern on Memorial Day. Uh, you can uh, take a look at the, the film, everything you want to know about the car, car culture, and how uh, car culture has changed American society. And there are many ways that its uh, cars have impacted our lives. We, it's It sort of fades into the background because cars are so ubiquitous, but it's interesting to bring this forward. And we're asking you a few questions. What's your first car? Uh, what's your dream car? What's your most memorable road trip? And what's your next trip? Many of us will be heading out on the road. Uh, uh, and as you say in the publicity materials, uh, Bennett, uh, most of us say in motel, we'll... Uh, We'll, uh, maybe we'll eat at a fast food restaurant. We'll be on a very nice interstate road system. All of that started with the car. Coming up, we'll hear a clip from the, from the film, and we'll talk about w- what driving was like cross-country before Eisenhower came along, and much more following the break. UPR's business underwriters support the station and expose their products, services, and events to our loyal listeners. Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For information on underwriting, please call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Thank you.
Parabolus multiflora, also known as the desert four o'clock. It's a spectacular plant that doesn't need additional water once established, and it blossoms continuously from early summer until fall. Learn about it on the Zesty Garden this Thursday, along with bombardier beetles and trap jaw ants with Diane Alston, and the industry of nursery-grown tomatoes in Canada on Petals and Pros. That's the Zesty Garden, heard each Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We're talking cars on Access Utah today, and we're hearing clips from a new film. The executive producer is with us, Matt Bennett. The film is called Driving America. It premieres uh, 9 p.m. Eastern on Memorial Day on the National Geographic Channel. And we're asking you to tell us about your first car, what's your dream car, what's your next trip, what's your most memorable road trip or family vacation. And the number is 1-800-826-1495. Excuse me, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or we're on Twitter at uh, Utah Public Radio. Uh, Every once in a while in the the film, you'll have, uh, quote, unquote, regular folk telling some car stories. One that stood out to me (laughs) uh, was uh, on their cross-country trip, Dad Wouldn't Turn On the Air Conditioning. One, that's one lady's recollection, <laughs> which I think resonates for anybody who's you know ever had a dad on a road trip. <laughs> yeah, I think it resonates for all of us because we just we all remember those family trips, and they are all equated with immediately they're equated with a car. Tom, I can't tell you how many times I hear the the words, "Oh well, I'm not really a car person," but then you just say in a it, moments later, there it is followed by a comma and a but. I do remember <laughs> my dad taking right. us on a trip, and my brother throwing up in the back seat, and you know, <laughs> right. And then it goes from there. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not really a car person. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think we've all, you know, a lot of us uh, t- took a trip as my family did. Uh, eight kids cross country twice. And I look back on oh that. My gosh. I look back on that, and I think, uh, boy, how heroic my parents were. They they didn't get a vacation. You know, that's that's a that's an ordeal. Uh, this was in the you wow. know the the wood paneled station wagon with the rear facing seat, and and yeah. and seat belts. You know, maybe maybe not. You know, kind of a thing. That was the that was that was it. You know. Yeah, I remember. The, we took a trip from Fort Worth to Minneapolis, and um, I remember. You know, the parents smoking in the car, and my baby sister, who was probably one, uh, you know, just crawling around in the back seat with me, and we didn't think of wearing seatbelts. You know, there was there was this baby seat that we bought, but it was, it was kind of metal, weird thing that looked like a high chair that just sat in the back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's a bit. You know, those are good advances in safety that we've made. I remember in that rear-facing yeah. seat, it produced this little metal area between the you know the the second seat, which was front-facing, and the back seat was rear-facing. And yeah. my youngest sister, that's usually where she would end up. And you know, you can only imagine in a in a bad crash what would happen there. But but you know, we didn't think right. of those things. Well, we were also driving around. Those cars were tanks too. You know, they they um. You would you would hit a stump and the car wouldn't budge, you know, it, it wouldn't fold in any way. So, 
um, we have come, uh, there's no question we've come a long way. We've come a long way as far as the longevity of our cars. If you think about it, uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we were driving a car. If it went, if it hit 70,000 miles, we were terrified that, you know, how am I going to make it to work? And um, today we could put 250,000 miles on a car without, without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good segue into the, the next clip that I want to have us here. Uh, this is not the not the clip I made reference to earlier. We'll get to Eisenhower and the interstate road system. But I want to hear about this is the development of a, an innovation, gas stations. And then in the oh, film, yeah. you, you move into the, the oil crisis of the 1970s. So let's, let's hear this. from the, This is from Driving America, which will be premiering on National Geographic Channel. Oil was plentiful and cheap, the ideal American fuel option. All we needed was a way to get it in the tank. So hence the modern gas station popped up. St. Louis, Missouri, 1905. While the rest of the country gets their gas from cans and barrels at the hardware store, a company called Shell sets up the world's first filling station. The gas station starts out as a very sort of modern, new, it was a startup industry. Each one was trying to outdo the other. By 1939, there were well over 200,000 filling stations across the country, enabling us to drive virtually anywhere we needed to go. They would clean the windshield, they would check the oil, check all the fluids, and if they needed filled, they'd do it. It was really almost a, at times, luxurious sort of uh, oasis on your trip. And then the filling station lost its charm. By 1970, we were using more oil than we could produce. And in 1973, the Arab oil embargo choked us. Gas stations looked more like Depression-era breadlines. I had the unfortunate coincidence of just getting my license when the oil crisis hit. So no sooner had I finally learned to drive that I was waiting in line for like 90 minutes in the morning to get gas, sometimes to be cut off at the end saying no more gas available. And what happens is everybody panics. There's long lines at gas stations. Nobody was ready for it. Detroit wasn't ready. We want big cars because we're a big country and that's what we want. Well, along comes the oil crisis, and suddenly our big cars don't work so well anymore. So I think we all remember or have seen footage of the, those long lines at the gas stations. Uh, I, I was a you know, kid, teenager, didn't, didn't have my license yet, so this wasn't affecting me much. Um, but, but what I wanted to get into is, uh, then the film gets into uh, Detroit, the, the American auto industry, which has produced some great cars. You know, thinking about the Corvette yeah. and the Mustang and everything. At this point, they they just they blew it. They just you know the Pinto, uh, <laughs> which became a, oh, yeah. a a joke. You know, in films, I remember films. You know, where 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 Grandma on her walker barely touches it and it blows up. Um, the you know the uh, the uh, Pacer, the Gremlin, the the Vega. What what went so horribly wrong there? Well, it was something we didn't we just didn't understand. Um, we, we didn't know how to do small very well. Um, we were just thinking we'd, we'd seen this a couple of cars um, you'll, you'll see in the in the film you'll see uh, we really really praise the Honda Civic that that started to roll in the United States in 1974 and um, it got almost 50 miles per gallon and it really changed everything we think about 
the Toyota making such an impact, and it it certainly did uh, culturally, but but it was that one unbelievably efficient car that really changed was a big the biggest game changer for us. But if you look back even into the '60s, the, uh, Datsun, which is now Nissan, Datsun and Toyota were making these very small uh, fuel efficient cars, and and as the uh, the oil crisis was looming, General Motors and Ford and Chrysler, to some extent, began focusing on, and certainly American Motors, uh, they started focusing on, oh, we need to create fuel-efficient cars. That means we need to make them small, because that was working with Datsun and Toyota. And so they just started making their cars smaller. They weren't terribly efficient, and they were ugly as can be. And they were terrible mechanic, uh, terribly mechanical, uh, mechanic cars. So, um, you know, I remember, again, cars are so personal, but there's a personal story. And uh, I hesitate to say it because of how much I love General Motors over the years, but they're... (laughs) In it was 1973 or four when um, we were buying a house, and it was you know with the model home you were offered uh, either seven hundred and fifty dollars off or a brand new Chevy Vega, <laughs> and my family took the seven fifty because <laughs> it was like. Uh, no way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There just a series of, and, and of course, Detroit American automobile industry has gotten better at this over time. And now, but but you know, into the breach stepped the Japanese, and uh, and uh, yeah. you know, then the Koreans, and and so now you see the commercials for for the cars, American cars, when they want to tout reliability, they're comparing them to the Japanese. Absolutely, absolutely, and we've also. It's it's become, you know, Toyota has become as much of a of an American brand as anything. Now, you know, here we are, 2015. There, uh, all kinds of Japanese and Korean uh, automakers are have have facilities here where Americans are making the cars, or and or at least parts to the cars. And so it's become very much uh, Toyota is an American brand in many mm-hmm. many ways. That yeah. is Nissan. Uh, we're talking with Matt Bennett. He's uh, executive producer of a new film, Driving America. It premieres on Memorial Day at 9 p.m. Eastern um, on the National Geographic Channel. Uh, let's hear this next uh, clip. This is uh, the development of the interstate highway system. And uh, I think we really take this for granted. It's, we, we don't, you know, we didn't live during that era. We didn't take cross-country trips, most of us. And so we, we just take this for granted. Let's, let's hear this. So help me God. Dwight Eisenhower had a lifelong vision for an American highway. It started when he joined the Army's first transcontinental motor convoy in 1919. The young lieutenant colonel was on a nearly impossible road trip. It was 62 days on impassable roads that left him devoted to an America united by one great highway system. But it wasn't easy. Each state seemed to want to build its own road system. But were they going to connect? Who knew? Kansas jumped ahead and built their section of road. Oklahoma had yet to begin. So the Kansas Turnpike and all its greatness ended suddenly, instantly, at the Oklahoma state line. 
And this is the dysfunction that lives inside of America until Eisenhower comes along and builds the interstate system. In 1956, when ground is broken, it is the largest public works project in the history of the world. It is 41,000 miles of roadway and nearly 50,000 bridges. It is something that is so enormous, so large in its undertaking that no one before had seen anything like it. And that may have been one of the biggest decisions in the history of the world. The interstate system becomes this perfect model of democracy. It's about the federal government and its role being an overarching rule. And it's a volunteer system. The states didn't have to participate, but they chose to. Now, more than 50 years and hundreds of billions of dollars later, the U.S. interstate system remains a never-ending process of building and rebuilding. But it keeps these states of ours united. So that's a uh, clip from the film. Eisenhower uh, really pushed this interstate road system. Uh, all of the states had the choice whether to join or not, and they all they all did. Um, the, the <laughs> you have a you have to see it to to believe it in the film. Yeah. The uh, you know Kansas builds this wonderful system, but it stops right at the right at the Oklahoma border. Just just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's the way it was. That's yeah, the way America took, was. It took a uh, politically. It took a lot. Tom. Um, for Eisenhower to make this happen. And um, it, it, it is absolutely, it's said in the film, and, and I'll just reiterate it, it's, it's this, without a doubt, far and away, the largest single works program of all time in creating, I, it's impossible to, to actually say the specific numbers, but it's probably around $450 billion all in, um, in just the interstate alone. Uh, Eisenhower, though, for decades before, had been uh, fighting for this and, and championing these national roads, like, like the Jefferson Highway, Route 66, you know, all the, these places where we uh, also probably drove as kids, and they're iconic drives today. I have a... Uh, there's, a, have a... there's another thing... Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. There's another thing I was just going to say, Tom, about about you know the Eisenhower deal is that a little side story. You know that his first trip cross country did take 62 days, and it was in 1919 in an army convoy. And that you saw the fr- you can see the frustration because the roads just simply didn't exist in places. You know, you would drive across deserts where there may be some, you know path. Um, but, you know, there were chunks where there wasn't any path at all. Chunks in Iowa that were, were very, very difficult to get through. But there was a there was a cross-country drive that, and we mentioned it in the film, but there's a cross-country drive that most people aren't aware of that happened 10 years previous. In 1909, um, there was a publicity stunt. There was a, a, a um, a company called Maxwell had this car, and uh, they said, well, you know what, it's, it's the perfect car for a lady. Even a lady can drive it. And they, uh, this absurd uh, a publicity stunt, they put Alice Ramsey, who was a 22-year-old um, housewife, and they put her and her sister in this car, and she drove it across the country from New York to San Francisco. Um. And she did it in less time than Eisenhower did it in 1919. So, <laughs> amazing. And I think it was 
59 yeah. days. Yeah, I was going um, to I was, I was gonna have you bring that up. I, uh, that struck me as well, Alice Ramsey uh, uh, driving cross-country. Um, uh, let's go to our uh, caller. Uh, Barbara in Hiram joins us. Thanks for being patient. Uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question. Thank you. Um, I just want to say that when I was very small, we had a big blob of a car called a terraplane, which I, I don't remember much about it other than it was a big blob, but I love the name because I was positive that it could take off at any moment um, <laughs> just because of the name. But um, my, my dream car was always um, a Datsun 280Z, and um, I would see them in the... I'd see them from the car window and say, oh, there's another one, oh, there's another one, whatever. And one year, my husband surprised me and gave me a, a 280Z, a Datsun 280Z for Christmas. And it is absolutely beautiful. Probably, you know, the phallic symbol of my life, but it, it's a, a beautiful car. Lots of noise. Um, because of a hip problem, it's too low for me to use anymore, so I need to sell it. But it's just such a beautiful thing. And, and I remember that, that the, the small imports at that time were small and ugly and clunky and everything, but, boy, not the 280Z. It was gorgeous, and it still is to this day. Well, thank you, Barbara. Yeah, I remember, I remember the 280Z. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool car. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, that, Barbara, that's a really great point. We, you know, I remember that coming out and feeling like, oh, my gosh, that's the coolest car ever. And it was... It's so weird that suddenly an American car were, was the ultimate, or not, a non-American car was the ultimate fast car. You know, it looked so mm-hmm. cool and fast. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, uh, we have an email from Steve, and uh, we're asking you, what's, what was your first car? What's your special car? What's your dream car? And uh, what's your most memorable road trip? What's your next trip? I'll just share one memorable road trip before we go to break. Um, I had some roommates, this was 20 years ago in my early college years, um, and, and Utah State University was playing uh, in football, they're playing uh, Iowa State in Ames. So somebody got the idea, let's drive, let's drive over there. Um, and so we, we'd, uh, five of us, I believe, in the car, we did a road trip, and it was <laughs> quite the deal. By the time we were coming back, there was a lot of sniping and uh, you know fighting amongst the roommates. But it was while it, while it lasted, it was a it was a good. We just went watched the game and came back. That's what you know. You have to be young to do that. I think. Uh, so let's uh, let's go to break. Uh, we want to know about your first car, your dream car, most memorable road trip. What's your next trip? One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com or following the break. The concerts were historic and because of political implications covered by news outlets around the world, but the greatest impact of the Minnesota Orchestra's trip to Havana this past weekend may have been in personal, musical, one-on-one connections. The Minnesota Orchestra in Cuba on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that preschool children already have an intuitive number sense that relates to their later performance in school math? Research suggests that ways to improve this early number sense may include having children play multi-sensory computer games. This type of play may eventually help boost early math education in the U.S. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking cars, we're talking car culture and how cars have changed American society. We're talking with uh, Matt Bennett, who's executive producer of a new documentary film, Driving America. That premieres on the National Geographic channel, 9 p.m. Eastern on Memorial Day. We're hearing some clips from the film, and we're asking you about your first car, your dream car, special car. Uh, what's your most memorable road trip or family vacation? What's your next trip? 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can join us on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. Here's an email from Steve. He says, weren't the Pinto, the Pacer, the Gremlin, the Vega, Detroit's quite belated effort to build small, well-engineered economical cars in the European style? When I heard you say Detroit really blew it, Tom, I thought you were referring to the bloated land barges that epitomized American automobiles. The Europeans and then the Japanese were way out in front. The Pinto et Alia were America's first halting steps to go in that direction. It took decades, but now American cars are the equal of European cars. The Pinto, the Pacer, the Gremlin, the Vega were the first baby steps. That's what uh, Steve says. And- Steve is exactly right. They were... It doesn't mean they were big successes, but they were ex- they were exactly what we needed. We were trying to to uh, make more sense. We just weren't good at it yet. We just didn't know how to do it. And uh, but Steve is exactly right. It it started the process for us to become um, efficient car makers. You know. And then he refers to the you know those land barges, and I I think we <laughs> I don't know if we still if we could maybe we'd go back. There's some. There's some affection for those land barges, but uh, gas prices being the way they are, and you know, oil being what it is, maybe we probably can't go back. Yeah, it's it's really impractical. Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. I will say, you know, you'd be surprised at how many of those gigantic old cars that we remember as gigantic old cars, and you put a tape measure on them. And they're not as big. A lot of them are not as big as some of the cars that we yeah. have on the road today. Yeah, yeah it's just the, but, the comparison, maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think that, that, you know, there's a all the safety factors and everything else, there's built-in, it's just a lot more cush. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, <laughs> you, know, you, say? You, you got your, you know, your... Uh, SUVs and your Humvees and such. So we still have the you know the big the big tank like like uh, vehicles. Let's oh, go yeah. to a let's go to a, another caller, Dan in Silver Springs, Nevada. Um, I think that's our first call hey, from yeah. Silver Springs. Go ahead. Hi, how you doing? My go. most memorable road trip was started out about four years ago. I took off on a little vacation, and I'm still on it. <laughs> really? I ended up becoming a truck driver. <laughs> really? Okay. Yep. Interesting. So that's what? A- Tell tell me a bit about that. You you were just going to hit the road, and then you decided to become a truck driver. You you liked hitting the road well, so much. What what happened? I hit, hit the road to get away from the X and did some thinking. Somehow I ended up riding with a couple of truckers, and I kind of liked it. I've been doing it for now for four and a half years. Well, that's amazing. That's amazing. And you're you're probably going to do this for a while. Uh no, I'm getting ready to quit. Oh, okay. What What's next? I figured five, five years is going to be long enough for me. Okay. <laughs> so this road trip is coming to an end. What are you going to do next? Take it easy. Take, take, <laughs> Relax. Take Stay it easy. home. <laughs> well, that's what you do after a road trip, especially a five-year road trip. Okay. Have right, you been anywhere yeah. great? Yeah, Have you, you seen some great stuff? Oh, yeah. I've seen, I've seen some crazy things, too. I mean, I've seen most of 
90, 95% of America, the only states I haven't been to is Alaska and Hawaii. I can't figure out how to make my truck float yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's a great story. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you sharing that. All right. No problem. Thank you. Yeah. Get, get some rest. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. the The road trip turned into a new career, and I guess he'll go to something next. That what he hasn't discovered how to make his car float yet. That uh, reminded me of a fact I hadn't known in in the film. the The first car in America floated. Yeah, that is um, that's one of those uh, kind of amazing. There, everything about the first car in America um, story. I mean, we 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 dug and dug and dug to to try to say, okay, well definitively the first card the first card but what we found really was that there was uh, this boat car in the late 1700s um a steam car and uh it it was actually a car that was powered by steam that that drove uh on the, the paths of philadelphia as well as the rivers in philadelphia yeah, um, amazing. Just amazing. And and the plans were announced in 1773. That that's that's early. Yeah. That's really early. Yeah, he, he I mean we're we're talking about going to the patent office where George Washington worked. To give you an idea, like that's how that's how long Americans have been dreaming of cars. And that's how deeply we're connected to the independence that cars bring. Mm-hmm. It's I, I wanted to, you know, Barbara had brought up the terraplane, and um, I haven't been familiar uh, with that. Yeah, well, nobody is. I mean, I've, I, even Barbara remembers it as a, something that looked like this thing that could take off, and 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 the terraplane w- was a was an automobile made by the Hudson Corporation, Hudson Motor Corporation, in the '30s, and it happened at a time that we don't even address in in the movie, and and perhaps we'll have an opportunity to address some of these other topics later on National Geographic, but um, post-Depression era 30s, as America was recovering, we were so thrilled that we were back, we're, we're getting back on our feet, that Detroit was pouring money into lavishness and trying to really celebrate that. And the terraplane was this gorgeous, long-nosed, airplane-looking vehicle that really was an example of that resurgence of, oh my gosh, we're coming back. We're America. You know, we're all going to be movie stars. It was a, it's an interesting era in, in car history in general, but the Terraplane is a very specific example of it. And there are, we should throw this in, there are many instances, so many that we don't even think about it, of how cars have, uh, have changed the way we live. And one basic one is the car created suburbia, right? Oh, yeah. For for good and for bad, we have suburbia because there was a car. I mean, the, it, so much of what we, um, so, you know, historically we're really connected by post-war. It's it's kind of a, you look through history and you see post this war and post that war and post that war, this happened. Well, post-World War II, our GIs came home and a lot of them were out of work. And uh, this incredible thing happened in 1948 uh, or late 47 when, when Ford gave us the first F1, 
that was a pickup truck, like a bona fide pickup truck, not a car made to look like a truck or anything. This was our personal pickup truck. And that meant that we as, uh, as war veterans could make our own work. And with that, we put our, our tools in the back and we drove away from the city and we started to put our shovels in the earth and make communities houses for uh for and uh like these suburban areas where uh suddenly other GIs and their families and their baby booming um you know communities started to crop up so it was all because of that that time and and um this sudden realization that oh we we need to make our own work we need to be freelancers and then it continues today that the Ford F150 or the, you know that that same series that started in 1948 is the number one vehicle sold in the world hmm. amazing we just have uh, yeah. about, about 30 seconds left i, I want to this you know a question to you as we end what's what's your next trip well you know heading into summer what's you know going to get in that uh, car and go yeah, you know, I I have to take some sort of trip every year, even if it's for a day, and just to put the top down in some cool rental car and drive. And and I know this time it's going to be um, up the Pacific Coast Highway, uh, just because I haven't done it in years and years and years, and I just love to feel my hands on the wheel and and um, do it by myself. You mm. know, just take a day or two and drive. So that'll be me. You may see me on the road. Okay, okay. That, that does sound great. That does sound great. Well, we'll end it there. We're out of time. The film is Driving America. Premieres uh, 9 p.m. Eastern on Memorial Day on the National Geographic Channel. We've been talking with uh, executive producer Matt Bennett. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. And uh, keep the comments coming. We want to know your dream car, your next trip, most memorable road trip. Uh, send those to upraxis at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about three nurses who traveled from Utah to Europe to serve in World War I. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. As World War I intensified in Europe, so did the need for medical help. The Red Cross established base hospitals and field units throughout Europe and launched a major recruitment campaign for medical staff. As the United States entered the fray in 1917, the War Department aimed to enlist 25,000 nurses. There were 450 trained nurses in Utah that year, and 80 of them volunteered to leave for Europe to serve the war effort. One of these women was Myrtle Butler of Sanderville, Utah. She graduated from the LDS Hospital School of Nursing in 1917 and was working in Wyoming. When the Red Cross called for nurses, Myrtle signed up and was eventually assigned to a hospital in France. In December of 1918, she wrote, Oh, what a joy it is to be of some service to those noble boys of Uncle Sam's. Maude Fitch of Eureka, Utah, was an ambulance driver in France. In her letters home, Maude describes driving through completely dark roads packed with advancing troops. 
coming upon towns that were destroyed by bombshells, and bribing traffic directors with cigarettes in order to get her ambulance through. Mabel Bedellion was assigned to Evacuation Hospital No. 1 and recounts that, in one night alone, more than 800 wounded American soldiers were brought in. Due to the shortage of nurses, she was given the responsibility to care for 136 of them. Many of the other nurses prized souvenirs from the German patients, but Mabel wrote that, Seeing our men wounded and dying is all I want to remember. I feel now as though I wouldn't give the smallest place in my trunk for anything off a prisoner. Myrtle, Maud, and Mabel journeyed to Europe to fulfill their duty as nurses and brought home unique experiences that advanced the nursing profession. Moreover, their service demonstrates the importance of women's contributions during World War I. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Tak. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Jack Dorsey helped start not one, but $2 billion companies. Still, he says he doesn't get to decide everything. So I I definitely see the organization and, and the people in it as the ones to make the decisions because they have the greatest context for what needs to be done. I'm Kai Rizdal, Jack Dorsey from Square and Twitter. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Thursday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Rachel Wheeler, USU graduate and music instructor at Roosevelt Junior High, for receiving the Sorensen Legacy Award for Excellence in Our Education. The award recognizes the educators who embrace the arts at Utah's public schools. UPR congratulates Rachel Wheeler for her honor of the Sorensen Legacy Award for Excellence in Our Education. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Zesty Garden.